chapter seven part two of supplements to the first book second half the doctrine of the abstract idea or thinking from the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine the doctrine of the idea of perception chapter seven on the relation of the concrete knowledge of perception to abstract knowledge part two perception is not only the source of all knowledge but is itself knowledge cat exohin is the only unconditionally true genuine knowledge completely worthy of the name for it alone imparts insight properly so called it alone is actually assimilated by man passes into his nature and can with full reason be called his while the conceptions merely cling to him in the fourth book we see indeed that true virtue proceeds from knowledge of perception or intuitive knowledge for only those actions which are directly called forth by this and therefore are performed purely from the impulse of our own nature are properly symptoms of our true and unalterable character not so those which resulting from reflection and its dogmas are often extorted from the character and therefore have no unalterable ground in us but wisdom also the true view of life the correct eye and the searching judgment proceeds from the way in which the man apprehends the perceptible world but not from his mere abstract knowledge that is not from abstract conceptions the basis or ultimate content of every science consists not in proofs nor in what is proved but in the unproved foundation of the proofs which can finally be apprehended only through perception so also the basis of the true wisdom and real insight of each man does not consist in conceptions and in abstract rational knowledge but in what is perceived and in the degree of acuteness accuracy and profundity with which he has apprehended it he who excels here knows the platonic ideas of the world and life every case he has seen represents for him innumerable cases he always apprehends each being according to its true nature and his action like his judgment corresponds to his insight by degrees also his countenance assumes the expression of penetration of true intelligence and if it goes far enough of wisdom for it is preeminence in knowledge of perception alone that stamps its impression upon the features also while preeminence in abstract knowledge cannot do this in accordance with what has been said we find in all classes men of intellectual superiority and often quite without learning natural understanding can take the place of almost every degree of culture but no culture can take the place of natural understanding the scholar has the advantage of such men in the possession of a wealth of cases and facts historical knowledge and of causal determinations natural science all in well-ordered connection easily surveyed but yet with all this he has not a more accurate and profound insight into what is truly essential in all these cases facts and causations the unlearned man of acuteness and penetration knows how to dispense with this wealth we can make use of much we can do with little one case in his own experience teaches him more than many a scholar is taught 
by a thousand cases which he knows but does not properly speaking understand for the little knowledge of that unlearned man is living because every fact that is known to him is supported by accurate and well apprehended perception and thus represents for him a thousand similar facts on the contrary the much knowledge of the ordinary scholar is dead because even if it does not consist as is often the case in mere words it consists entirely in abstract knowledge this however receives its value only through the perceptive knowledge of the individual with which it must connect itself and which must ultimately realize all the conceptions if now this perceptive knowledge is very scanty such a mind is like a bank with liabilities tenfold in excess of its cash reserve whereby in the end it becomes bankrupt therefore while the right apprehension of the perceptible world has impressed the stamp of insight and wisdom on the brow of many an unlearned man the face of many a scholar bears no other trace of his much study than that of exhaustion and weariness from excessive and forced straining of the memory in the unnatural accumulation of dead conceptions moreover the insight of such a man is often so puerile so weak and silly that we must suppose that the excessive strain upon the faculty of indirect knowledge which is concerned with abstractions directly weakens the power of immediate perceptive knowledge and the natural and clear vision is more and more blinded by the light of books at any rate the constant streaming in of the thoughts of others must confine and suppress our own and indeed in the long run paralyze the power of thought if it has not that high degree of elasticity which is able to withstand that unnatural stream therefore ceaseless reading and study directly injures the mind the more so that completeness and constant connection of the system of our own thought and knowledge must pay the penalty if we so often arbitrarily interrupt it in order to gain room for a line of thought entirely strange to us to banish my own thought in order to make room for that of a book would seem to me like what shakespeare censures in the tourists of his time that they sold their own land to see that of others yet the inclination for reading of most scholars is a kind of fuga vacui from the poverty of their own minds which forcibly draws in the thoughts of others in order to have thoughts they must read something just as lifeless bodies are only moved from without while the man who thinks for himself is like a living body that moves of itself indeed it is dangerous to read about a subject before we have thought about it ourselves for along with the new material the old point of view and treatment of it creeps into the mind all the more so as laziness and apathy counsel us to accept what has already been thought and allow it to pass for truth this now insinuates itself and henceforward our thought on the subject always takes the accustomed path like brooks that are guided by ditches to find a thought of our own a new thought is then doubly difficult this contributes much to the want of originality on the part of scholars add to this that they suppose that like other people they must divide their time between pleasure and work now they regard reading as their work and special calling and therefore they gorge themselves with it beyond what they can digest then reading no longer plays the part of the mere initiator of thought but takes its place altogether 
where they think of the subject just as long as they are reading about it thus with the mind of another not with their own but when the book is laid aside entirely different things make much more lively claims upon their interest their private affairs and then the theatre card-playing skittles the news of the day and gossip the man of thought is so because such things have no interest for him he is interested only in his problems with which therefore he is always occupied by himself and without a book to give ourselves this interest if we have not got it is impossible this is the crucial point and upon this also depends the fact that the former always speak only of what they have read while the latter on the contrary speaks of what he has thought and that they are as pope says forever reading never to be read the mind is naturally free not a slave only what it does willingly of its own accord succeeds on the other hand the compulsory exertion of a mind in studies for which it is not qualified or when it has become tired or in general too continuously and in vita minerva dulls the brain just as reading by moonlight dulls the eyes this is especially the case with the straining of the immature brain in the earlier years of childhood i believe that the learning of latin and greek grammar from the sixth to the twelfth year lays the foundation of the subsequent stupidity of most scholars at any rate the mind requires the nourishment of materials from without all that we eat is not at once incorporated in the organism but only so much of it as is digested so that only a small part of it is assimilated and the remainder passes away and thus to eat more than we can assimilate is useless and injurious it is precisely the same with what we read only so far as it gives food for thought does it increase our insight and true knowledge therefore heraclitus says polumathia nun udidasque motiscitia non dat intellectum it seems however to me that learning may be compared to a heavy suit of armour which certainly makes a strong man quite invincible but to the weak man is a burden under which he sinks altogether the exposition given in our third book of the knowledge of the platonic ideas as the highest attainable by man and at the same time entirely perceptive or intuitive knowledge is a proof that the source of true wisdom does not lie in abstract rational knowledge but in the clear and profound apprehension of the world in perception therefore wise men may live in any age and those of the past remain wise men for all succeeding generations learning on the contrary is relative the learned men of the past are for the most part children as compared with us and require indulgence but to him who studies in order to gain insight books and studies are only steps of the ladder by which he climbs to the summit of knowledge as soon as a round of the ladder has raised him a step he leaves it behind him the many on the other hand who study in order to fill their memory do not use the rounds of the ladder to mount by but take them off and load themselves with them to carry them away rejoicing at the increasing weight of the burden they remain always below because they bear what ought to have borne them upon the truth set forth here that the kernel of all knowledge is the perceptive or intuitive apprehension depends the true and profound remark of helvetius that the really characteristic and original views of which a gifted individual is capable 
and the working up development and manifold application of which is the material of all his works even if written much later can arise in him only up to the thirty-fifth or at the latest the fortieth year of his life and are really the result of combinations he has made in his early youth for they are not mere connections of abstract conceptions but his own intuitive comprehension of the objective world and the nature of things now that this intuitive apprehension must have completed its work by the age mentioned above depends partly on the fact that by that time the ectypes of all platonic ideas must have presented themselves to the man and therefore cannot appear later with the strength of the first impression partly on this that the highest energy of brain activity is demanded for this quintessence of all knowledge for this proof before the letter of the apprehension and this highest energy of the brain is dependent on the freshness and flexibility of its fibres and the rapidity with which the arterial blood flows to the brain but this again is at its strongest only as long as the arterial system has a decided predominance over the venous system which begins to decline after the thirtieth year until at last after the forty-second year the venous system obtains the upper hand as cabanus has admirably and instructively explained therefore the years between twenty and thirty and the first few years after thirty are for the intellect what may is for the trees only then do the blossoms appear of which all the later fruits are the development the world of perception has made its impression and thereby laid the foundation of all the subsequent thoughts of the individual he may by reflection make clearer what he has apprehended he may yet acquire much knowledge as nourishment for the fruit which has once set he may extend his views correct his conceptions and judgments it may be only through endless combinations that he becomes completely master of the materials he has gained indeed he will generally produce his best works much later as the greatest heat begins with the decline of the day but he can no longer hope for new original knowledge from the one living fountain of perception it is this that byron feels when he breaks forth into his wonderfully beautiful lament no more no more oh never more on me the freshness of the heart can fall like dew which out of all the lovely things we see extracts emotions beautiful and new hived in our bosoms like the bag of a bee thinkst thou the honey with those objects grew alas twas not in them but in thy power to double even the sweetness of a flower through all that i have said hitherto i hope i have placed in a clear light the important truth that since all abstract knowledge springs from knowledge of perception it obtains its whole value from its relation to the latter thus from the fact that its conceptions or the abstractions which they denote can be realized that is proved through perceptions and moreover that most depends upon the quality of these perceptions conceptions and abstractions which do not ultimately refer to perceptions are like paths in the wood that end without leading out of it the great value of conceptions lies in the fact that by means of them the original material of knowledge is more easily handled surveyed and arranged but although many kinds of logical and dialectical operations are possible with them yet no entirely original and new knowledge will result from these that is to say no knowledge whose material neither lay already in perception nor was drawn from self-consciousness 
this is the true meaning of the doctrine attributed to aristotle nihil est in intellectu nisi quod antea fuerit in sensu it is also the meaning of the lockean philosophy which made for ever an epoch in philosophy because it commenced at last a serious discussion of the question as to the origin of our knowledge it is also principally what the critique of pure reason teaches it also desires that we should not remain at the conceptions but go back to their source thus to perception only with the true and important addition that what holds good of the perception also extends to its subjective conditions thus to the forms which lie predisposed in the perceiving and thinking brain as its natural functions although these at least virtualiter precede the actual sense perception that is are a priori and therefore do not depend upon sense perception but it upon them for these forms themselves have indeed no other end nor service than to produce the empirical perception on the nerves of sense being excited as other forms are determined afterwards to construct thoughts in the abstract from the material of perception the critique of pure reason is therefore related to the lockean philosophy as the analysis of the infinite to elementary geometry but is yet throughout to be regarded as the continuation of the lockean philosophy the given material of every philosophy is accordingly nothing else than the empirical consciousness which divides itself into the consciousness of one's own self self-consciousness and the consciousness of other things external perception for this alone is what is immediately and actually given every philosophy which instead of starting from this takes for its starting point arbitrarily chosen abstract conceptions such as for example absolute absolute substance god infinity finitude absolute identity being essence etc etc moves in the air without support and can therefore never lead to a real result yet in all ages philosophers have attempted it with such materials and hence even kant sometimes according to the common usage and more from custom than consistency defines philosophy as a science of mere conceptions but such a science would really undertake to extract from the partial ideas for that is what the abstractions are what is not to be found in the complete ideas the perceptions from which the former were drawn by abstraction the possibility of the syllogism leads to this mistake because here the combination of the judgments gives a new result although more apparent than real for the syllogism only brings out what already lay in the given judgments for it is true the conclusion cannot contain more than the premises conceptions are certainly the material of philosophy but only as marble is the material of the sculptor it is not to work out of them but in them that is to say it is to deposit its results in them but not to start from them as what is given whoever wishes to see a glaring example of such a false procedure from mere conceptions may look at the institutio theologica of proclus in order to convince himself of the vanity of that whole method there abstractions such as en plethos agathon paragon kai paragomenon autarches aition kretan kinitan akinitan kinumenon that is unum multa bonum producens et productum sibi sufficiens causa melius mobile immobile motum etc are indiscriminately collected but the perceptions to which alone they owe their origin and content 
ignored and contemptuously disregarded a theology is then constructed from these conceptions but its goal the theos is kept concealed thus the whole procedure is apparently unprejudiced as if the reader did not know at the first page just as well as the author what it is all to end in i have already quoted a fragment of this above end of chapter seven part two recording by expatriate in bangor maine